What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men's Sunday. I'm your host, Corey Murray, a show about generational wealth, wealth in general for Black men. It's a Black Men's Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best foot forward and elevate. Today, this brother here, when we talk about generational wealth, when we talk about family leadership, when we talk about goals in life, this brother here is a legend in Orange County, in Orlando from Daytona Beach. This brother here now, I gotta say it now because you did go to both. So this brother here has a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Bethune. Now he had to be a bad guy. This man went from Bethune to FAMU got a master's in education. And then I don't know how he ended up in Gainesville, but he got a doctorate of education from the University of Florida. So this brother went to a couple rival schools and still survived. He also has a master of divinity from Colgate Rochester Divinity School. And when we talk about generational wealth, y'all better be ready for this. This brother here is the co-owner of a church, New Covenant Baptist. And when I say a church, this isn't any church. This church has a charter school, K through five on the property, has covenant on the lakes, apartments on the property. This brother here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I did my research, I saw you were the NAACP chapter president for Orange County. So welcome this brother to the show, the Reverend Dr. Randolph Bracey Jr. Him and his wife has to be the only people I know where he's got a son that's a junior and the daughter's named after the wife. So welcome him to the show. Thank you, Corey. Uh, delightful to be with Black Men Sundays. Uh, I must admit that a week and a half, two weeks ago, other than my wife telling me about this group, I did not know that you existed. But I thank God for the privilege of knowing Corey. Corey is something special. And he's pursued me with, uh, with uh, uh, a desire to, that he wanted me to speak to the, to the brethren. I understand that it's a fellowship that crosses several states. In fact, that you, you are out some parts of the West, as I understand. Uh, but I'm delighted that you've invited me. And uh, uh, I have uh, gone and caught the situation where you interviewed my wife a couple of weeks ago. And I'm delighted to be here. You in good hands right here. This Black Men Sunday. So, you know, just... Um, me doing my research on you, you know, like I said, I, I dropped your credentials. When I pulled up an article on you, you said that uh, in the article that Bethune Cookman saved your life and you went to Howard. So let's start right there. Well, first of all, let me, <clears throat> let me just say this. I'm 77 years old. All right. I was born. I'm pretty sure as I look around the group, uh, 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 I, I'm the elder statesman, if you will. I was born in 1944 in Duval County. I am a native Floridian. I am an only child. I uh, started school very early. Uh, back in those days, uh, they they had what they call skipping. And I started, uh, by that I mean as a, I'm an only child, and I started first grade. I was four years old. And, and during that time, they had what they call uh, sitters. And uh, there was no intent for me to pass on. Uh, uh, I was four years old and I turned five in my first year. And then I subsequently, uh, at the end of the first grade year, I 
they told me that I had done so well on tests. And I please don't think I'm braggadocia by, the, by no stretch of the imagination. But uh, uh, I, I finished uh, first grade at five. And then I started second grade at five. And, uh, uh, and I, that, that helped me to the extent that I went from kindergarten through 12th grade. And I graduated from high school at 16. That uh, in some places would be a great situation, but that was a bane for me in the sense that uh, I paid for that much of those uh, adolescent puerile days. I grew up in uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, an only child. My uh, parents were uneducated people. My daddy and my mother went no further than the sixth grade, but they wanted to make sure that uh, that one and only son had the exposure to as much as I could. One of the things I was very cavalier, and I'm getting to answer your question about how Bethune-Cookman saved my life. Uh, I always was able to do things pretty well in terms of schooling and performance on aptitude tests and that kind of thing. And so I was uh, admitted to Howard at 16 years of age. Fortunately, unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, I was uh, a student that socially I was not ready for. Academically, I was ready, but socially I wasn't ready. And if any of you ever been to Washington, D.C., Howard University, you know anything about Georgia Avenue. Georgia Avenue had that magnetic pull that I wasn't ready for. And uh, I spent the first three years of my college career at Howard University. By that time, like I said, I went there at 16, and because of experiences and exposures, I, was, uh, I, I just couldn't handle it socially. And so I was told by the, the, the uh, registrar's office, it, I got a letter, I never shall forget it, in my third year at Howard, said, Mr. Bracey, I, I think it would be to your behest to leave the university because for all intents and purposes, you are not college material. Maybe a, a career vocational uh, thrust might be a lot better for you. So there I was, I was kicked out. One of the things for those who are Florida and m University people, I had, uh, before I went, uh, when I was 16 years old I, old, I had a full scholarship, full scholarship uh, given to me by Dr. William P. Forster to be in FAMU's band. I, I, I didn't have to pay a dime, but I said, no, I'm going to Howard University. I was going to be a medical doctor, if you will. You know, at that time, there were only two uh, HBCUs with medical schools. That was uh, Meharry and Howard. So I was going to be the, the medical doctor that was going to turn the world upside down. Now, if you listen to me, and please don't take offense when I said it, I've always had a good self-concept. But I got kicked out of school and they told me that uh, I wasn't college material. And so I tried to reapply for FAMU. FAMU would not accept me, even though they were three years earlier, they were gonna give me a full scholarship uh, under the incomparable Florida A&M University band. I say that to say that the only school, the only school that would accept me after getting kicked out of Howard was Bethune-Cookman. That's how I answer your question, Corey. That's the school that saved my life. Because when I did show up uh, at Bethune three years later, 
some of the people that had graduated with me from high school, oh, what happened? Brace they got kicked out of school. He thought he was so much and the like. And it was kind of like a dog with his tail between his legs. Uh, my self-esteem was down to zero. But there was something about coming to Bethune-Cookman. And I came by the grave site on the campus of Bethune-Cookman. They have the grave of Mary McLeod Bethune. And what is so powerful, something electric, uh, magnetized itself in my personality. And it, it was a place that gave me a sense of personhood. It restored who I was as a person. Some people could say I was very affirmative in my position. Some people could say I was cocky, but, by, but I had been knocked for a loop. But then Bethune was a place that restored my self-esteem, that, that, that cockiness, if you will. So I did uh, three more years. It took me six years to finish an undergrad. But uh, one of the things that, uh, and I say this, uh, is that uh, school academics has never been a problem for me, never been. And so, uh, I, I still hadn't gotten to the full of, of it in the sense that uh, performing to the very best of my ability, I could always take tests and do well. So I finished uh, um, Cookman, and this was at the height of the Vietnam War. And so if, uh, if you're an African-American male at that time, this was a time that if you, if you tried your best, you tried to get out of it because... Uh, Vietnam was a very scary, very frightening experience for Black males. A number of my classmates from Jacksonville and also from Cookman had gone to Vietnam and come back home in, in boxes and in coffins. And so I tried my best. I taught school uh, uh, in New York. I found a way to get up to teach school. And this was at the time, I know perhaps this is before most of your all's time, but Sidney Poitier, he's your Denzel, was at the height of his game. And uh, uh, he put out a movie called To Serve With Love. And it was a story about uh, uh, this Black uh, uh, Caribbean, Caribbean fellow who taught school in this uh, um, place in London, one of the uh, places of London. And the title of it, this is I, I uh, and it, and they call it to sir with love. They call Sydney sir. And at that, and what was so powerful about that? That was a time when uh, I uh, was seen kind of like as a, I was six feet. I've been six feet two. I was about one hundred seventy five. I've added a little more to my girth since then. But uh, I was uh, 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 at this white school in Long Island, New York, and I stayed there until. Uncle Sam caught up with me and they tried their best to put me in the service. Well, long story short, I did 13 years in the United, 13 months in the United States Navy. Uh, and I was able to come out uh, uh, on uh, honorable discharge. And what's so interesting about that, I came back to Jacksonville and tried to figure out what I was gonna do with my life. And uh, someone said, you, you got the GI Bill. Why not go to school? Uh, and so I went to Florida. And that's how I got to Florida. And uh, I came there uh, in, uh, for 1970. And I stayed there uh, for a year and a half. And I really enjoyed uh, most of the fellowships there at FAMU. 
Uh, a number of the professors I knew very well, especially those in the band, from Dr. Julian White and Dr. Shayla James, if you know anything about the foreign a band. We were in high school together. So I, I enjoyed my year at FAMU, a uh, year and a half at FAMU. And then I got my second best job. Uh, I did my master's degree. I was at, but even though I had started late and got kicked out of school, I was roughly 26 years old with my master's walking out of FAMU. And I got this job at an HBCU called Mississippi Valley State University. Well, it, at that time, it was Mississippi Valley State College. Well, Mississippi Valley State College, you know anything about the civil rights movement, it's in the heart of the Delta. And if you can imagine, uh, hey, there I am coming to Mississippi Valley State College University. And they had, this was during the time of student insurrection with students taking over administration buildings and the like. And Mississippi is, a, I spent one little better than a year at Mississippi Valley State. And uh, I hope I'm not in, uh, hurting anyone's feelings on this, but uh, I got to Mississippi Valley State and uh, uh, there's a culture in Mississippi Valley, especially in the Delta. I was there the, the previous year, the university, the, the black students had taken over the university's uh, administration. And the president of the school had the entire student body locked up in what they call Parchman's Farm. Parchman's Farm is the maximum security, uh, just like Angola is for Louisiana. Parchman's Farm was the all of the horrendous stories that you've ever heard about Mississippi, uh, uh, that's where they would do the capital punishment. Well, anyway, when the students decided to take over the administration, the president at that time, it was run almost like a plantation. He had the entire student body, if you can imagine, taken to Parchman's farm overnight. I, I was a Florida boy, and I know Florida might have had its problem, but Florida was not nearly as bad as Mississippi. I, it, was an, it was a very expansive experience for me in the sense that I was exposed uh, to civil rights. I had the chance uh, to uh, uh, meet a number of civil rights personalities and the like. And that's what set me on my road for strong social justice. By this time, I was given an opportunity to come to the University of Florida because the black students, which was a very paltry, small amount at the University of Florida had just taken over the administration building at Florida. And so what happened was they needed someone, a young black fellow, about 27, that had some higher education experience. And they hired me to be over all of the black freshmen in 1971. So there I am at the University of Florida. Uh, and Florida at that time was making a major, major change uh, for the acceptance of black students. Uh, and so I was not only brought there, but I was also uh, brought as one of the chief recruiters for the Florida Gator football team. Uh, now, uh, if you can imagine, and I said, I, I was really loving this. I was really loving this experience in higher education. And so I said to myself, one of the things I found out was that if you're going to do a career in higher education, 
you have to have the terminal degree. And as a black man, I don't care how you occupy or whatever, in order to make any kind of ascendancy on the career ladder, especially in higher education, you're going to have to have the terminal degree. So I then, uh, after one year of being over all of the black freshmen, I decided to pursue my doctorate at the University of Florida. And I, and I have a record now for somebody that got kicked out at Howard. Uh, uh, I finished as one of the youngest ever to, get, uh, to earn the terminal degree at age 29. I walked out of Florida with my terminal degree. At uh, that time, subsequently met my, the woman in my life that I married. A preacher's daughter. You met uh, my wife, who she was in Gainesville. Uh, she was the first black to uh, integrate the public school systems of Alachua County. That's where Gainesville is. And uh, we met, and uh, preacher's daughter. It was the best thing ever happened to me. Uh, I'll say that. I subsequently, at age twenty-nine, feeling myself, smelling myself, cocky, you know. Uh, I was put on the first faculty of the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. I was, uh, like I said, I was feeling myself, smelling myself, and thinking highly, more highly of myself than I are. But the one thing I did not tell you is that uh, I was, I'm an authentic person of the church. I was born in the church. Church is all I have ever known. And so I thought I wanted to be a college president, especially after finishing the University of Florida. And I was on the first faculty of this brand new university in Jacksonville called University of North Florida. But there was a spirit that was just groaning within me that was telling me this was good, but this was not the place where I wanted to be. I subsequently, uh, my wife, because she's a preacher's daughter, she knew what it's like. And so I, we, and both of us, so I had earned my terminal degree she had started her, now don't miss this. She started her, her terminal degree at Florida. She'd finished the Fisk University. Then she subsequently went to the University of Miami and she had her doctorate. So there we were, two black folk, probably 30 something, 30, early 30, early 30. And, but I was, I told the baby, I came home one day and I said, this is all right, but this is not for me. I want to be a preacher. I want to, God has put a calling on my life. So there we were in Jacksonville. Uh, both of us with our doctorates. We then moved because I had this passion for social justice. And I became enamored with a person called Howard Washington Thurman, who would become, who was the mentor to Martin Luther King Jr., one who really enabled and empowered him to really seek the career that changed the world in social justice. Well, guess what? Uh, Howard Thurman had gone to Colgate Rochester Divinity School in Rochester, New York. King was associated with that. The social justice preachers that I was had a proclivity to be like, uh, we went there. We went to uh, Rochester and I did three more years at this bastion of liberal theology. After three years there, my, my two children, my son, who is now a candidate for congressman, and my daughter was born there. We moved, I was called to a Baptist church in Philadelphia, which radically changed my life. And the reason why, when we moved to Philadelphia, we we're both Floridians. 
and we get to Philadelphia and the church where I'm called, the chairman of my board of deacons will become the first African-American mayor of the city of Philadelphia. Now imagine here I am for all intents and purposes, a country boy from uh, Florida. And here I was thrusted right in the middle of major power of a, the, at that time, the fourth largest city in America. Uh, I was mentored, I stayed there as pastor of the mayor of Philadelphia for slightly under 10 years. But it was a situation where uh, I was in the room with the vice president of the United States, Walter Mondale. I was put in some big heavy hitting stuff. And I just thank God because it gave me a perspective on how you really, really do ministry in a big situation. I subsequently, my wife and I, we said, now we spent almost 10 years in Philadelphia. I was pastor the mayor. Everyone in Philadelphia knew me that way. She was in his cabinet. She was over the entire homeless situation in Philadelphia. She was director of homeless. But we had this yearning to get back to Florida. Uh, I, I tell people to this day, you know, the Lord does live in Florida. Uh, there's, a, there's something beautiful I wouldn't say, especially if you've seen the weather report today. Some of my best friends today living in 40, and even in Detroit, they were less than 10 today. And I, do you know what it was like today in, in sunny Orlando? 85. And it had gone up to 87. So I, I knew we had to get back to Florida. Plus, we, there's something about Florida that we wanted our children to be exposed to. So what happened? I was called to this church. This was the most historic church in the city of Orlando. But I now remember that I had been uh, engaged in, uh, in this whole thing of social change and the like. And I was called as pastor of, of this historic church. But I, the Lord has put in me a spirit of maverick in the sense that I have this sense of wanting to be beyond just the box of doing just the what's what's the parameters of what a box puts you in. So I spent there one year and that didn't work out. And so me and my wife, we were able to start a church from scratch, a church from scratch, literally with nothing. When we started, 300 of the members, well, 289 from the former church left and followed us. They followed this preacher, I'm 40-something now. And they, they decided, well, maybe he has something. So they, we started that church. My wife and I founded this church in 1992. We retired in 2013. Again, we didn't have anything. We left with the total assets of approximately 20 plus million dollars. Uh, we had, uh, as uh, Corey had said, we had done, uh, we, we became a model for Florida, uh, for a church, if you can imagine, we started uh, uh, in 1992 and in 1996, we were marching into a brand new building that we had started. Prior to that, I did a, a, a summer at Harvard at the Harvard Divinity School. And uh, it was a great experience because they wanted to see what we were doing and why were we so successful in such a short time. Well, the Lord just blessed us. I mean, and we were just blessed and the like. Uh, like I said, I did 
with my wife and I, we did 20 some years there at that church. And, uh, and the assets totally was, uh, and it's paid for to today as the like, was over $20 million with starting with zero. I say that, that uh, uh, I also now, uh, with my background, I'm presently retired, I retired, but I also am now uh, on the, I'm Dean, I was given the charge of formulating a school of religion six, almost seven years ago. We were able to get that done. We were certified uh, by the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. And God has just blessed us from literally uh, very uh, parsimonious beginnings to where we are today. And so I, I'm thankful as I look at this Black man in worship, uh, and you're asking me, uh, after you had asked my wife, uh, to join you. I, I, I'm just delighted. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to kind of just give you a capsule of who I am uh, and the like. God has blessed us. God has blessed me, especially as a pastor, with a model that we believe is uh, a model for the nation in terms of, uh, of of a black man doing ministry. So that's a great, great setup because uh, you know I've got a couple of brothers that want to ask a couple of questions. You know, you mentioned uh, New Covenant Baptist Church, and just for the brothers that are out of town, you know, we're not we're talking thirty thousand square foot church. Like uh, like Dr. Brace, his wife said on episode four, they bought lakefront property. Keep in mind, brothers, this Black Men's Sunday, like I said, this is a show about generational wealth. Go ahead, Commissioner Scott. Hey, how you doing, Dr. Brace? It's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, I had a couple of questions. I'm going to just get one in for now. Uh, what's the process of actually purchasing and owning a church? Kind of, Is it considered commercial real estate or is it not uh, commercial real estate? Irony of all ironies, when we started, we didn't know what we were doing. All the thing that we had going for us that both of us came from strong, strong religious families. My wife's father graduate of Florida Memorial College and now University in Miami, but also was a graduate of Howard Divinity School. And one of the things he was able to do was to change Gainesville. And he allowed us to oversee what he was doing. And so what we were able to do was to be able to take, think outside the box. And I must admit, several of my European brothers felt a need to, to help me. And for instance, Black church, if you can imagine, uh, uh, as Corey mentioned, here we are, a Black church in the downtown, near the downtown edges of Orlando with waterfront property on one of the most gorgeous pieces of property in Orlando. But not only that, we purchased over uh, in the first few years of our ministry, 24 acres of waterfront property and, and the like. One of the things I, I went to uh, a symposium, a summer symposium at Harvard Divinity School that really opened up my eyes about the value of a nonprofit in concert with a profit and how you work that to the advantage uh, of the church. Uh, so uh, uh, so it was, we had the, 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 what we are Community Development Corporation, which uh, was the conduit for purchasing that ground. 
And like I said, when, when I walked away from it uh, as a retiree 20 years later, it was worth over $20 million in corporate assets. Man, I'm going to do a little research because I want to possibly do the same thing one day. So thanks again for information, Dr. Bruce. As, a, as a, I, I'm just proud of what I see, just a little I know superficially about Black Men Sunday. And uh, the, the whole idea of empowerment. Uh, I had some great mentors, some great mentors that did some uh, humongous things as it relates to Black church and empowerment. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the AME church up in uh, uh, New York, uh, where Floyd Flake uh, pastored for many years. Well, they, they had a corporate worth of well over $100 million. Uh, but he was able to do this by using uh, uh, and creating a number of CDCs that had different focuses. For instance, a focus on housing, a focus on economic development, a focus. Uh, uh, they had all of these CDCs that was under the corporate influence of the uh, 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 of the church, where the church was the major thrust, and uh, he had a corporate. Where I'm talking about a good 10, 15 years ago, they had a corporate worth of well over $100 million. And like I said, this brother here is a definite, with well, a reverend doctor here, got to give him his respect, is the example of generational wealth. So uh, moving forward a little bit, Dr. Bracey, give, you know, brothers on here, there's homeowners on here, there's business owners on here. There's a brother on here actually owns his own law firm out of Tampa Bay. Um, there's brothers on here that have, uh, done well selling stocks, selling crypto, bought property. So brothers on here are doing pretty well, you know what I mean? But there's a few brothers where, you know, they're still trying to get it together. They're still trying to purchase their first property. So that's where I wanted to ask my next question. There's brothers that I talk to on a daily basis. They all say, well, not they all, but a few of the younger brothers say, listen, I have stocks, I have Robin Hood, I have Fidelity. I don't need to own the roof over my head. I don't need to own property to generate generational wealth. What do you say to that, uh, Reverend Bracey? Well, I, I'll put it this way. We could not have moved as quickly or as fast as we could have, as we did, if we did not have the acquisition of land or real estate. Remember now, when we first started, we purchased, the first thing out of the box, we purchased 10 acres of real estate property at $190,000. We were able to use that as a leverage when we started having plans about a building and the like. You can't, you, you, you say what you will or may, but the, the old fashioned way is real estate. And to be able to, to uh, to do what we were able to do as a church, we had to have the leverage of owning ground. Now that might sound so archaic and the like, but boy, when you own ground, they make uh, the strangest thing that was that banks came looking for us because you know what they were saying? There's this black church that owns 10 acres of ground. Now, now please don't get me wrong when I say this, make this point. Now we're talking about almost 30 years ago, and how many black churches, no building, no nothing, own 10 acres of ground? That's the first of all. And real estate in one of the most desirable locations in all of America, Orlando, Florida. Shortly after that, 
we we came to the table and was about to do the deal for closing out on the 10 acres of ground for 190,000. And one of the fellows said, well, I got seven more acres that I'm willing to sell you. When he saw that these black folk were serious about doing the deal. But now he saw that we were able to not only pay for it, but now maybe these black folk were serious. Again, when you're talking about leverage with banks, guess what, we then purchased another seven, seven acres meaning that at the culmination of that time, we had 17 acres of ground that we didn't know, that we owed, we owned, I mean. And what that meant was, guess what? Banks, the word was on the street, this is black church, got some ground that they own. So my point was we were able to literally back into the situation and finance the church, and we marched into a brand new church in four years after starting with nothing. So for those that talk about, I, I, I guess, I don't get me wrong, I'm still researching Bitcoin, and I, I know this is the, this is the thing with, with this generation. But I, I guess I'm dealing with it the old-fashioned way. Nothing beats real estate and ground. And one of the things that I have seen over and over again we as people of color, men of color, need to understand that how you, you got the ground, you can do a whole lot of leveraging uh, in terms of the financial arena. Well, I definitely got a quick question because uh, Dr. Bracey, it sounds like what you were saying is that, okay, even if young people may not be in a position of life, settle down and buy a residence, they can still possibly invest in property and get in land so they can have leverage for buying, per, buying power uh, for other things, right? So maybe if you want to buy a house, if you're still buying real estate, but buy some land. Because when I was younger, I was kind of moving around trying to figure out where I wanted to be at. But, you know, I was taking the option of buying some land. It was about two acres. It was close to a commercial uh, development. So, I mean, that's something that young people can think about as well, I guess. Just to, like you say, get the land, get the leverage, right? Now think about this. In four years, we started out with zero. Four years the day we started, literally, we marched into building a 30,000 square foot state of the art mm. building. And what gave us the edge? What gave us the wherewithal with banks? We owned the ground. We could not have done what we did in such a short time had we not owned the ground. Okay. Got you. I'm taking note. Uh, let the young cats know that. Go and buy you some land when you can. You got the finances, you got the credit right. Just go ahead and get in the game early because it'll, it'll set you up in the long run. Uh, my quick question, uh, I'm actually in school right now. I got 18 credits left for getting a doctorate. Now, I kind of contemplated, should I go and finish and get a doctorate or do I got enough education to do what I need to do, blah, 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 because I started a business up. Do you have any advice for becoming an eventual dean or president of a university? Because that's going to be what, uh, what my goal is. Well, my, let me tell you what is ironic. Uh, when I walked out of the University of Florida at age 29 with my doctorate, and I think I can say this among the brethren, I was smiling at myself. I was cocky, Doug. I was feeling it, Doug. <laughs> All right. And one of the, in the back of my mind, I remember I got kicked out of Howard. Okay. I was going to want to show them something, what they missed when they let me go. 
Right. There's another great. But I, I matured. I matured. Uh, uh, I thank God for higher education. But one of the things I thank God to be a pastor, to be, a, I've been a pastor now going on 47 years. Okay. And one of the things that uh, uh, I love is the fact that I'm the pastor of a Baptist church. And then one of the things that helped me, I have, a, I said something earlier about being, having a maverick spirit. And what I meant by that is that, Doc, I, I, I want to do what I want to do. And when the Lord is just giving me a plan, I'm going to do it. And what that meant was that, that uh, uh, I changed block. And in, in retrospect, one of the best things that ever happened, I did not become president, all right? But I was able to, uh, for instance, uh, and don't get me wrong when I say this, but uh, you come to Orlando, and, and the, the name Bracy means something. You don't do anything. I, and given my experiences in Philadelphia, working with the first black mayor of the city of Philadelphia, understanding the the process, guess what? I was able to take those learnings from a Philadelphia and bring them to an Orlando and, and to parlay that and to bring those things into play on how do you really make an indent in terms of a, of a city? And in the, the 25, 30 years that I've been, guess what? I have a reputation that, that better than I could have ever had as a president, all right? Because uh, they would, if, if please, and I have to, please, I, I, I just am getting to know you, brother, so I don't want to come across as a pious but person. But I was blessed, and, and, and you, don't, you didn't make a decision as it relates to Black folks in Orlando, if you didn't come by me. Okay. But I want you to understand, you know, uh, I'm just so sad, I'm so thankful and grateful to God that that he put me in a situation where I learned, I learned. I learned from some of the best minds in Philadelphia. But guess what? I, I came home to Florida and to understand the whole political process, to understand how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you make a difference? Great information. Um, when you talk about power leverages, I thank God that, you know, well, what does Reverend Bracey think? That might be on the first lip of any congresswoman, man, or mayor. What does Reverend Bracey think? Fortunately, I got a, woman, a wife who keeps me mellow and, and the like. But one of the things we wanted to do was to make a difference. Uh, some of you might remember there used to be a program on TV called Dynasty. I have a, 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 Corey made some statement earlier. We have my son carries my name. My daughter carries my wife's name, which is very unusual. But guess what? We are talking about leaving a legacy. Long, I told you earlier that I'm 77. I'll be 78 years old. Okay. The Lord has blessed me. And guess what? I want to leave a legacy for the coming generation. That, that, that when I'm dead and gone, they say, oh, man, did you see what they did? And as a black man, I'm fiercely, fiercely excited about leaving a legacy for the generations to come. Well, one thing I heard you just say is that um, you constantly sought mentors. So I guess, you know, I can tell you have a level of humility that allows you to keep growing no matter what level you're on. So uh, it's important for people to really understand that, you know, people know stuff, right? You can learn stuff in books as well. But people don't know how to get stuff done. They have to do experience. 
And it's great to hear that uh, a person of your caliber still was able to seek out the right mentors and bring that knowledge back home. So that's awesome to hear that. Let me commissioner, let me tell you what I'm in the best position of my life now. I'm a dean. I'm given the charge of putting the dean of a school of religion. And I have uh, millennials and Generation Zs. And more, you know, and there is a 50 year gap between them and me. But I'm so excited about, you know, they call me Pops and they come around, Pops, well, what do you think about this? Pops, what do you think about that? I'm delighted that they want to find out what an old man would know uh, where they are and what, 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 what these are the kinds of situations. So, so Pops, they got, and they still do uh, on, uh, on during a weekly basis. I, I got so many young, pardon the expression, uh, I know it's co-educational, but young black men want to know from a 70-year-old, a septuagenarian, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Young preachers going into the ministry, how do I make a difference? Uh, you made a difference. What can I do? What can I learn? You know, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Let's talk about, you know, you you were the president of the, or the Orange County branch of the NAACP. We had your wife on episode four, Dr. LaVon Bracey. And one thing big to her was voting. So I would like to touch on voting. I would like for you to touch on critical race theory while we have you on here. And I would like for you to just touch on how you got involved and what made you become chapter president of the NAACP, brother. First of all, uh, my father and my mother, as I told you earlier, they were they didn't go any further than sixth grade. But the Lord blessed them to be entrepreneurs in the sense that my daddy owned his barbershop, owned his own barbershop, and my mother owned her own beauty shop. And we were located right on the campus, I mean, right on the campus of Edward Waters College in uh, Jacksonville. In my senior year in high school, Martin Luther King Jr. came to visit uh, my high school. Remember now, I, I, did, I didn't. I went from elementary school to three years at Howard, three years at, at uh, Bethune-Cookman, two years at FAMU, and never sat in a class with a Caucasian. So I was fiercely, my father was uh, a strong champion of social justice. And so I never should forget, I was in 12th grade and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. came to Jacksonville to speak at the Mount Area Baptist Church. and I, uh, my daddy insisted, well, I was not that into it, but because my daddy said that my daddy, a black man that didn't take tea for the fever, told me I had to go, I went. I say that to say that I slowly but surely developed a fierce uh, thing for social justice issues. I tell this story with, uh, I went to Howard University and in, in my third year, I lived in this dormitory and guess who lived right across the hall from me? Stokely Carmichael. Stokely Carmichael. They call him Teray before he Wow. Died. Okay, Stokely, Stokely died. Now I'm from Florida. Now Stokely had uh, come from the Caribbean, but he lived in New York, I think it was Jamaica. Anyway, we had this standing joke because I was from the South. Stokely would always call me country boy. Always. Oh, Florida, y'all Florida boy, ain't nothing but country boys in the line. Uh, and I never shall forget that he went to Mississippi for a summer and he came back. Well, if you look at my head now, it's, it's, I never had that much hair. 
Uh, I, I had what they call a Flip Wilson Corvatus at the time. Well, anyway, Stokely went uh, uh, to Mississippi and came back with an afro out the head. And we living in the dummy right across the hall. And so I said to him, Negro, what in the world? What you doing all that hair? What you going to comb your hair, man? You know, one reason I couldn't grow that much hair. But anyway, I say that, but we had that kind of banter back and forth that he, he respected me and I respected him and we became fond of each other. Well, I say that to say that slowly but surely, I began to develop this thing on social justice. And my dad had since said, uh, put me into the NAACP and, and the like. And I, I came along during the time of uh, when, when Emmett Bobo Till was lynched and from Money, Mississippi. I'm talking about 1955. And this, like so, I'm a part of that era, and and I never should forget uh, coming home. Uh, and once I got in, when I, once I got into Philadelphia and was pastor to the mayor, I saw the power that the black church could make in terms of voting. Uh, before he became mayor, he was what they call managing director of the city of Philadelphia, and he was able. And he took me along and I asked him, I said, uh, Mayor Good, his name is W. Wilson Good. His name is W. He's still alive. And I said, would you just take me with you so I can just learn? Well, I saw power, power. I saw the power of Negro politics or Black politics. I saw the power of the vote. I saw how they had never had a Black to become mayor and the Black church and this political leverage was able to put the first African-American mayor into the fourth largest city of, uh, uh, in the nation. I say that to say it's been a growth with me. And, and like I said, my wife, she was in his uh, cabinet and I saw power politics at its best. And so there we come to Orlando, the Lord just opened up a way for me. Oh God, let's make this thing happen. And so when uh, Barack Obama, came to Florida. Uh, he came with, he was a senator at the time. And he said, uh, I need to meet some of the black preachers. The Lord had put me in a position, said, you need to talk with Bracey. And it's the strangest thing that ever happened. Uh, me and my wife had 30 uninterrupted minutes with Senator Barack Obama, who was doing a uh, a feeler campaign, because at that time, the word was, if you win Florida, you could win the presidency of the United States. The key for winning Florida politically goes from what they call the I-4 corridor, which stretches from Tampa, St. Pete, across the middle of Florida to Daytona Beach. Long story short, my wife and I had a 30-minute unerupted conversation with uh, Barack Obama, and we made a commitment that we would see to it that he becomes president of the United States of America. The point was, he was dead on when he said, if you win Florida, if you win the Apple Carter, you win the state of Florida. Guess what? She was an instrumental in registering votes, so much so that when he was accepting the nomination in Denver, Colorado, he cited my wife 
for the kinds of work that we, she did. And I subsequently did as a, in tandem with her and the NAACP. One of the things I found out uh, uh, is if we do this thing right and do it under the auspices of, uh, of, of Christianity, especially, I think we can turn what seems like a very formidable situation around by doing voter registration and education. That's a long convoluted answer to a short question. So what, as a black man, can we do these days to where we can secure? Because my thing is, you know, we're talking about generational wealth, but when we look at black men over the last 10 years of home ownership, we're 10 to one, meaning with other races. So I feel like, you know, when I talk to a bunch of elders, they say, you know, you talk about generational wealth, but as a black man, we're used to generational poverty. So what do you say to that? First of all, let, let me let me let, let me put it this way. White America is, and I'm making a broad brush when I say what I say, let's get to death. The 2045 predictions of the US Census says that by 2045, this nation will have dramatically shift from Anglo to predominantly majority brown and black. This is a very frightening thing if you're European of descent. That's frightening. And we there's a there's a, a biblical uh, story that I use when I talk about this thing of uh, what they're doing now with critical race theory. There's in the Old Testament the story of Daniel when 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 uh, it was the king called Belshazzar, they had taken over the children of God and while they were having a big party. And while they were having this big party, a hand appeared out of nowhere and began to write on the wall. And it shook everybody up, that those that were oppressing the people of God. What does that have to do with this day and time? What you have now is that the vast majority of Europeans have started instituting such things as critical race theory because they are fearful. They are scared that if the truth be told, and it's just a matter, all I have to do is just tell the story of how we as people and our ancestors have borne their burden in the heat of the day. They talk about such things as 1619, about Anna, Anna Jones and, uh, and the story she tells about uh, uh, in Port Comfort, Virginia. The point is they know and I'm saying they, I'm talking those that are the perpetrators of critical race theories. They're trying to find every little bit that they can to distract and deter, especially here in the state of Florida. We have a, a, a governor who is riding her, trying everything he can. And he has recently, my son is a part of the Florida state legislature. Uh, they have just uh, embraced uh, uh, this whole thing of teaching critical race theory so that teachers will be afraid to teach about the truth. Well, the Bible says that the, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. They cannot stop an idea whose time has come. Yes, they're coming up with all of these things of critical race theory, but the reality is that that, that uh, uh, these, I think, are the last ditch gasping efforts 
of a, of a people who know that they, they are defeated. And so uh, I, I hear it. Uh, they talk about don't want to make people uncomfortable. Come on, let, let me just put it this way. There's, it, it's time for us as people of color to make the uncomfortable, to make get them to understand that this is serious business. We're going to tell the story. You, too many of our ancestors have died and borne their burden in the heat of the day so that we can enjoy these liberties. And I don't believe we're going to go back. I think we're going to fight it. We're going to fight it. And uh, the reality is, it, it's the truth. How are you going to hide the truth? And, uh, and and I'm praying for this generation. If we get out and do our, what we're supposed to do, we can make a difference. We can make a difference. And uh, so uh, uh, I, I, I just believe that this critical race theory is just nothing more than a, a, a way of just trying to thwart and disturb the, the inevitable. They see the handwriting on the wall. They see it coming. And that's why they're doing all these things to put in place. Uh, uh, but the reality, you cannot ignore how this country, I did a paper on reparations very recently and I talked about every last major university from the Harvard, the Yales, the Princeton's, the Georgetown, they are living off of the efforts and energies of our ancestors. You talk about the richest school in the world, the Harvard University, guess what? Go look at their portfolio. They're there because of what they did to our ancestors. So critical race theory, do, do I make you uncomfortable? I hope to make you even more uncomfortable. You're getting, you're getting the preacher part of me now. Well, I love it, I love it. You know, let's stay there for a sec because we had your wife two shows ago, and she said, when I asked her the critical race theory question, I, I just want you to comment on this. I asked her her thoughts on critical race theory. She said, she, she told me one statement. She said, with critical race theory, I can't tell my story. Well, uh, to just today, I, I was, uh, I, I did, uh, I, I just let preach uh, this morning uh, from, a, from a book called The Judges. And, uh, and it's an interesting story in the book of Judges. And it talks about the fact that after Joshua and his generation had died, the, son, the, the, the part of the text says, a new generation arose who knew not the Lord or the great things that he had done in Israel. And I say that to say that uh, my subject was, we must tell our story. My wife talks about the fact of going through St. Augustine uh, and having to deal with the slave markets of St. Augustine and then going from there to, to uh, being the first Black to uh, finish uh, uh, Gainesville High. But even before that, she tells in her story, her book, about having confronted the Klan as a child. Okay, and the point she was saying, the reason why she wrote her book, she said, I must tell my story because if I don't tell my story, other people will tell it and they will not tell it like I will tell it. And it's a responsible for us, those who know better. Again, I take pardonable pride in the fact I went from kindergarten to elementary to junior high school to senior high school to three years at Howard University, three years at 
Bethune Cookman, two years in Florida and, and never sat in a class with a Caucasian. I know Jim Crow and segregation firsthand. And it's my responsibility to tell you, yeah, I, I take part of a pride in the fact that, yeah, at, at age 29, I got my doctor from Florida, but the greatest part of my life was with black folk. I love the fellowship uh, of our communion that I would tell, I tell anyone, I would not take anything for my experiences at an HBCU. Uh, Corey, you, 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 what, did you go to FAMU? Say yes, sir. Oh, yes, sir. Fam, you. Let me oh, just yeah. tell you something. I tell, let me tell you, until you've been to a fam you homecoming, the only thing that beats a fam you homecoming Woo! is a house birthday homecoming. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh. I, I'm a <laughs> I've been on both, but, but don't miss my point. I've been at the University of Florida where they have, you know, and, and, and I can compare all those three, those three institutions. FAMU's homecoming is at the top of the list. And only at the HBCU, if you haven't been to HBCU, you're missing part of the, the graces of God. Oh, I know I said something there. Yeah. And, and so uh, the, the fellowship, there's something that, that, that happens when people of color come together like that. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't mean, I just inserted that point. So you, yeah. Uh, but I know since you said fam, you you had you had to spend a couple of years doing homecoming. A couple. And, and there's oh, nothing yeah. like it. <laughs> we out there at Bragg Stadium and sitting on the lawn. Oh God. And, and uh, they could never give you that at the University of Florida Gainesville. I'm not telling you what I think, I'm telling you what I know. Yeah, because I was gonna say I'd never heard of UF having a set now. <laughs> oh yeah, you know the deal. Hey, Dr. Bracey, hey, well, we got the Reverend uh, speaking also. I just got a question. So I noticed some of our counterparts, when I was younger, when I was 24, 25, as soon as they were getting out of college, they would get married, settling down. And to me, it just seemed like they start building wealth together with their wives earlier, right? Uh, some of us, you know, I got married really late because it really wasn't, um, I wasn't focused on that. But I felt like maybe I should have settled down a little earlier, had the mindset, and I think I could have start generating my wealth a little bit earlier. Would you have any comments to some of the younger people, some of our younger people, as far as having that mindset to stop being a playboy or playgirl and kind of settle down and look for your true mate? Literally, now this is going to sound like an off-the-wall story, but uh, a lot of it, it does comes with your maturity. Sometimes uh, 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 when I talk with some of the 20-somethings today, they're very mature, and, they're, they're, and then some of them are just off the chain uh, in terms of the immaturity. And I, I have to come with the old cliche about 20 something does what 20 something does. And uh, a lot depends upon the personality. But let me tell you something I, I had. Uh, I was pastoring in Philadelphia and my children uh, were in a part of the Philadelphia public school system. And I never shall forget, I went to uh, uh, find out what I should get them for Christmas and I, went by the computer uh, instructor and in FAMU, I mean, at, uh, in Philadelphia. And at that time, Philadelphia's business community, and I'm making a broad brush when I said it, was completely MS-DOS. And I was introduced, uh, this was the middle 80s going into uh, 90, and uh, the Philadelphia school system was all Apple. 
And I never should forget, uh, uh, Bill, I met Bill Gates. Uh, he was at a, uh, a thing at LaSalle University in Philly. And, uh, but at the time he was considering moving MS-DOS from to Windows. But meanwhile, Apple had already gotten this uh, a point and click down to science. Uh, and uh, so Windows was trying to catch on. And the point I made was, and I tease my wife to this day, I tease her to this day, baby, if I had invested the money that I saw Apple do at that time, I could buy the city of Orlando. I mean, lock, stock, and barrel. And the point, I, and I say all of that, Commissioner Scott, to, to, to talk about a lot of it has to do with maturity. When you're ready for some, some things you're ready for, and some things you're just not ready for. I, and I, I tell my wife, girl, do you know what, if I just had $10,000 to invest in Apple then, do you know what that would be? They would put me on the, on the Federal Reserve. And I say that facetiously, but the point I make is it. And so my thing for young black men, especially dealing with that, uh, uh, be open to, to all kinds of things. Like for instance, like I told someone earlier mentioned Bitcoin. I don't know a whole lot about Bitcoin, but I know enough of the people I respect are uh, getting into Bitcoin big time. And so what do I need? I need to do my research. I need to do, you're not gonna make a whole lot of money working on these jobs now because they ultimately, you're not gonna get rich working on a job. But ah, being able to explore and to expand your thinking beyond just the normal borders. You might make some mistakes. And who knows that we have lost, many times we've lost our shirts on something. But guess what? Do you want to spend 40 years uh, uh, working for that same job? That, that's one thing I'm also noticing. People are not staying on jobs forever. This generation, this hip hop generation, no, no, they don't stay for. Whereas my generation or my parents' generation stayed for forty years in a gold watch. No, 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 that that era has passed. And so, I, I say all of that to say to be open uh, for the to the new things. Do your research. Do your reading. One thing I thank God for uh, uh, is the ability to to, to read. And as a black man, I stay up on that. I might not have the money that I wish I had, but God, you, you, stuff ain't gonna pass me by. And so simply put, I, I just, the, the, the idea of doing your research uh, uh, and, and, and coming to the conclusion, unless you wanna be satisfied to be on that job for, and to get your gold watch, no. But let's, let's look beyond those borders. Thank you, sir. Yeah, so what I wanted you to touch on, first off, Commissioner Scott and a few other brothers listened to the show last week and them brothers said you were a beast bro so I gotta commend you on that and they haven't even heard the great debate yet they've only heard the first show so any comments on that so far um, Lynn? Oh no I well I at first I just appreciate the brothers sharing this experience and this knowledge base and um, I found it a, a little really interesting because you know I live in uh, Philly myself so just his background and what he was talking about some of the Philly experience I appreciate um, I guess one thing I say, just from what he spoke on, I think humbly that we call a look at is I'm not correcting one. One thing is I'm leveraged. Like he said, it's old and he said it's archaic. It is old. Um, it's from the archaic times, but it's just as useful then it is, it is as it is now. 
And that's probably the one thing that we could all definitely learn from him. Just like he's talking about the, how he bought that land and was able to leverage that and use that to build up another revenue stream and work that to get, you know, get the building for the church. We have those same opportunities out here, just like we're talking, just like he's saying, you know, educate yourself, learn about things. That way you could leverage your knowledge in order to make, find another way to make money or make more money with the money that you have. So I think that idea of leverage is timeless. You know, and that we could all definitely use that because he, he, like he said, he, he took an opportunity. He learned some things while he was in Philly. He took that back to his hometown. He looked at the lay of the land and he applied what he learned. And like he said, $20 million later, that is a phenomenal story to me. That, that definitely inspiring to me. Yeah. And also, Len, you know, because you basically the crypto expert on here, he said, you know, he don't know a lot about Bitcoin, uh, Land. He old school. So, what's your comment on that? Uh, well, I think again, but back to the point of leverage. I, again, it's just a matter of technology, um, and like he, like he was saying, there, there's there's tried and true ways of making wealth that we know that's been around a little longer, and then there's newer ways, and this is a newer avenue for investing. I think it's in a lot of ways it's a deflationary asset, although it doesn't exist in a physical world, although it's based on in, on a software and the technological world. Because of the way it's built and designed, it can serve as a hedge, as a hedge or a leverage against our fiat money system, like the dollar system in and of itself. One of the things you probably know and you're aware of is, you know, why we do invest and we need to invest is the the fundamental value of our dollars constantly declining. And kind of where these crypto spaces are coming out, um, where crypto is coming out is kind of leveraging the technology model and leveraging the accounting system that blockchain is developing to kind of go away from the old model of banks, needing banks as an intermediary between between a peer to peer. You know, if, for example, Corey or me or you, just like you bought that building where Ethereum stands uh, stands in. For example, let's take, a, take real estate as a process. One of the reasons why I like Ethereum, and I think you would like crypto for Ethereum of this. You know, in your dealings and your pastime, uh, everything is based on contracts. Everything's based on insurance and contracts and how, how ownership and money is transferred for different deals and different transactions from um, buying, buying equipment to renting services to maintaining a property on a building to acquiring other properties. Where blockchain and Ethereum give a great opportunity, I think a good amount of wealth is going to be grown is their use and adaption of smart contracts. Just like all of those transactions we're talking about, they all have intermediaries. And those intermediary, in, intermediaries raise the cost of doing business. You buying properties, you got to worry about closing costs. You got to worry about titling costs, D, you know, um, D transfer fees, and what have you. By adapting with, with some of these cryptos that are coming out, especially on the Ethereum network, they're going to be able to do those transfers without the intermediary of that titling company, <laughs> banking service. A person willing to buy the, uh, buy the property is going to be able to put their capital up. And the people selling the property are going to be able to encode the deed into that transaction. And, and those transfer fees really will dwindle. And that's where I think a lot of the cryptos have an opportunity in the transfer of ownership in the future, where Ethereum mainly. And again, Bitcoin, Bitcoin because of its fixed supply. Um, that's the main thing I think is always undersold with the people that, that you might even say that you respect that are getting into Bitcoin is that it has a fixed and finite supply and our dollars do not. And one of the things you 
you definitely learned with buying land. Like you said, you bought acres and albeit there wasn't anything developed on those acres, but acres, land, land is scarce. They're not making any new land. So even just like you said, it was waterfront property in Orlando. It hadn't been developed or anything, but you could see that in time that undeveloped land that was just sitting there empty that that would develop to be worth more than what it is and that's kind of where i see bitcoin and ethereum great commentary any uh any thoughts on that uh reverend bracey before we let you go man uh commissioner scott i i, I didn't need to talk with you man uh, i need at, at this stage of life I, I want my universe to be expanded and uh uh, too many people that I value their opinions are just talking about it over and over again, and and I I don't want to miss miss it like I miss Apple. Okay. <laughs> oh, it sounds like you need to join us on Black Man Sunday on Sundays because my man, who, yeah, like. we're not playing over here. We're trying to get the bar. Listen, we're trying to tell people you don't have after listening to Black Man Sundays. You don't have an excuse on why you're not where you want to be in life or wealth. If you're not there, just you know, it's on you at this point because it's too many open doors, it's too many uh people that can get you where you need to be. And there's brothers on this show, you know, like my man Ed here. He's a hey Ed, where you at, man? This brother here owns his law own law firm. This brother went to the uh Florida State Law School. Ed, where you at, man? Don't make me look bad, brother. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. I got to pass on the line. I'm digging you up. You lucky I ain't tell him. The only thing I don't like about Ed Reverend Brace is he tried to take my girlfriend at FAMU. Oh, okay. What's but, bes- <laughs> but besides that, him. yeah. But besides that, he's been a good dude. You know, he's uh, like I said, he's a FAMU undergrad, Florida State, um, Florida State Law School. Matter of fact, my second job out of college, I'm working in Tampa Bay. They had me working on us. I had to come. I'm like, I don't want to work on no Saturday. They had me working 8 a.m. Saturday morning. And who do I see? The public defender. I see my brother Ed. And that's when I said, hmm. Now this brother went from public defender, owns his own law firm. So Reverend Bracey, what advice would you give this brother? This brother's LLC, business owner, black man, law in Tampa Bay, Florida. Now this might sound, well, I'll put it this way. Florida is where it's at right now. And if we can change some things politically, I have to, with, I, this is a new frontier. This is a new frontier. Just yesterday, uh, day before yesterday, they must have set up five or six satellites uh, to explore uh, new horizons. Doc, I, I, think we, I think your generation, Corey and Ed uh, and Commissioner Scott, you are on the cutting edge of what it could mean for uh, for black empowerment. You have a new paradigm that's presenting itself to you. Just the, the mutual exchange, like what you say, black man Sunday, these kinds of things uh, can go a long ways uh, for empowerment for black people for the 21st century. Financially, I, I think you're on the cutting edge of a new frontier. Well, nah, well, sir, we really appreciate you. I appreciate you, like, especially what you said about CRT and just the wealth of knowledge you provided. You know, I put myself back there when you were describing yourself, you know, talking with, you know, Stokely Carmichael. And when you made that move from Philadelphia to Florida, you know, I try to imagine what that was like. So, you know, 
thank you for the perspective and thank you for your time. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Be blessed, friends. Uh, any other questions before we let the pastor? I got one last question to close it on a very serious and sensitive note, but um, Commissioner Scott is unmuted. Anybody else have any other things? If not, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Commissioner Scott. I can yeah, see I just want to say go. thanks for um, sharing your time with us. Thanks, Corey, again, for inviting me initially to the show. I'm learning so much. On Sundays, I feel like I can grow and not necessarily just do the research to grow, but just ask to talk to the experts like Dr. Bracey and Mr. Lynn also uh, listened to your podcast last week. Took several notes. Uh, probably be hitting you up because, man, you got a lot of uh, wealth and knowledge. But thank you again, Dr. Bracey, and uh, just thanks for blessing us with your presence. Carry on, friend. Appreciate that, bro. Dr. Bracey, before I let you go, you know, as a pastor, I want to touch on this one topic that I talked to you privately about is that I see a lot of brothers that, you know, have a lot of kids, uh, the the job hasn't been good to them. You know, they, you know, have a lot of struggles. And then when they're in these struggle points, they don't, they tell me straight up, why should I believe in God? What has he done for me? I've been struggling for the last 10 years. I have five kids now. Every job I get on, I have for a couple months, then they get rid of me and I'm back square one. But what, if, what has the Lord done for me? And I feel like as black men, when things are going good, you hear brothers talking about praying and things, but when things aren't going great, it's like they go against the grain. So before I let you go, I just would love for you to expound on this topic for us, because I feel like that's happening too much that the church, because back, you know, my grandmother used to talk to me, the church was a place where it wasn't just a church. It was a school. It was community leaders there. It was you know, it was a wealth of knowledge going on to where it was taken very seriously. But nowadays, I don't feel like the respect level of history, the respect level of churches, and the respect level of praising God is not where it used to be. I'll agree. Uh, uh, as a pastor, one of the things I deal with quite frequently with the Generation Z, but even before your generation, uh, where do we, it's almost like what Martin Luther King asked, uh, where do we go from here? Because the reality is the church that it once was in terms of your mama, your grandmama, that kind of thing, uh, new situations, new paradigms have emerged that it's not your mama's church anymore. Uh, there, there are so many other ways uh, that people find for solace in the life. But I think that, that uh, the pandemic has forced us to really do some serious evaluation. Where do we go on the other side? Once this thing, and God knows, I believe that it's coming to a close. Where do we go? What, 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 what will the church be? And I'm asking this rhetorically. Uh, for the 21st century and beyond, beyond the pandemic, uh, where, where, it provided, like you said, uh, colleges. They, everyone, if you went to an HBCU, guess what? Nine times out of ten, they started out of the church. Uh, the, the, it provided the avenue of support for people fledgling coming out of slavery and, and the like. But now you're in a different uh, 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 iteration, if you will. And so, where do what what does the church uh, do? And one of the things I'm teaching young men and women, how are you going to deal with the, uh, this 21st century church? 
because their needs are different, but they're very similar similarities. And so that's an ongoing discussion. I don't have the answers, but let me tell you what, I put it before all of my students. You're going to be going out into the field. How are you going to uh, deal with it? And I, I usually deal with it. There's a hymn that uh, if you're ever in a part of the church that came out back in the 1800s that I think is very applicable for today. And the title of, this, uh, of it says, to serve this present age, my calling to fulfill. Omit all my powers engaged to do my master's will. We serve a different age now. That, that, but, but how do we deal, especially as men of color? As how do we provide the leadership that that? Because uh, let me tell you, people are uh, in uh, uh, in terms of church. Uh, people are not coming to the building like they once. And I know, doubt very soon they ever come back in the droves and numbers that they did in, uh, say, your mother's era. I doubt very seriously. So, but how do you meet the, uh, how do you serve this present day? And so I, I really think it's incumbent upon us moving beyond uh, the, the, the pandemic to the present. How do we deal with the 21st century? How do we deal with, uh, uh, as people of color, how do we deal with, uh, uh, these people who don't look like us, who are determined to turn back the clock, who are determined to, 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 to do us in as people of color. How do we come up with strategies that, we, uh, that will help us to serve this present age? And so I, I, I answering your question by not answering your question, uh, uh, but I want you to know it's an ongoing discussion. If any viable HBCU, especially uh, that has a seminar or a theological seminar, they're asking this question. How do we really deal with this present age and moving them beyond the status quo? Because guess what? The, 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 the proponents of critical race theory, they, they are determined because they see the hand, right? And they're scared. They're scared. That, that, all of this is, and then people are playing upon the fears of these people. So, as ministers, how do I how do I cultivate uh, people, uh, brothers especially, who are trying to figure out? You know, I I heard your point, your 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 thing about losing a job or in the life. What God has God done for me? Uh, and sometimes the old platitudes don't work like they used to. He was your mama's help back, but guess what? It's real to you when you lost your job and and you you you. You don't have anything to feed your children with and, and the like. So I, I did all around. And I, you can tell I'm a preacher because I go around Robin's barn to say nothing and trying to answer your question. But I think it is a, it demands a serious dialogue beyond the pandemic as to how we're going to deal with this, especially the place of the church for the 21st century. And I have one more final thing. Uh, 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 I'm understanding financially they're doing well. Most churches are doing well, but how do we deal with the vast majority of men of color, women of color, and given the kinds of uh, uh, things that impact upon us today? So I, I answered your question by not answering your question. I mean, I was born in 79. 
Um, so I'm not that old, but you know, I just the church was an integral part of life. Grandmother, mom, aunts was all raised in the church, so I was raised in it. So it was just, you know, but you know, my generation, we had history, we had civics. A lot of these kids, when you talk to them now, they don't take history, they don't take civics. So, you know, like they say, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going, get rid of <clears> critical <throat> race theory on top of that, you basically a zombie you know, with technology in your hands, but you don't know who you are as a people until you do your research. So that's, that was my premonition for asking that question. Um, and, you know, before I wrap this up, I just want to thank you for your time. I know you're a very busy man. This man's a dean, reverend. You know, I, I appreciate you having time for us on Black Men's Sundays. And I appreciate your knowledge. I mean, I learned some stuff today, you know, besides my research I did on you to be able to properly introduce you. I had no idea. You knew Stokely Carmichael. Wow, that blew me away. I'm, I can't wait to go back and play this again and listen. So, um, but, you know, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on Black Men's Sunday. Because like we say, every Sunday, ain't no Sunday like a Black Men's Sunday is with an ass because we do this every Sunday. We bring the heat. We talking about generational wealth, this brother, 30,000 square foot church, waterfront property. This brother went to FAMU, Bethune, and Florida. That, so, you know, you got to be a bad boy to go all three of them. Because most cats, if you went to FAM, then you go to Bethune, you're going to have some problems. Then, then you became a gator <laughs> after all that. What? So I'm just saying, I got to commend you on that. I had to, you know, I had to mess with you from the jump a little bit. When I saw your resume, I said, this dude went to really, he really went to all those schools. And then, you know, the one thing that I didn't mention, you know, we talk about Oxford, you know, Oxford, England, you know, one thing I didn't mention, I just want to big you up on this brother here um, presented a paper at the Oxford Roundtable on Religion, Education and the Role on Government entitled When the Truth is Told, Educational Vouchers are a Sham. This brother presented that to Oxford University, you know, if you know anything about Oxford University, you remember they have a dictionary. I mean, if you want to be legit, you go to Oxford and, you know, if you have an idea new. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for your wealth of knowledge. Uh, it was a continuation. I, you know, I mean, it's just your family is amazing. Like, like, like he told y'all, when you come to Orlando, you say the word Bracey. You might, most people in Orlando, when you say Bracey, they thinking of his son, the third. I mean, when we talk about generational wealth, he is generational wealth at his finest. Not to mention, before I let you go, one thing I forgot to say is your daughter, LaVon Bracey Davis, um, running for Florida House District 45. She's a lawyer and a senior director of communication programming at the brand new Dr. Phillips Center in the heart of downtown Orlando. So, I mean, and like, like I told y'all when I introed him, his son is named after him. The daughter's named after the wife. I mean, look at this history. Look at this generational wealth. So with that said, Reverend Bracey, thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on Black Mint Sundays. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. And with that said, uh, thanks, everybody. Black Mint Sunday. We out of here. I appreciate you guys again. It's a Black Mint Sunday.